Pray for your leaders. It will help to set them free from the burdens of blame and the dangers of praise. God delivers Peter from jail. If you have your Bibles, open up or open up your phone app to Acts chapter 12. We have been working our way through Acts. And what we're going to see by the end of this chapter today is a, is a transition. A transition of power. Doesn't, it's not real obvious, but it's in there, especially going forward. But we're also going to see, and this is the main thing the Lord led me to emphasize today from this this text is the side-by-side comparison to two leaders and how one handled their leadership very well and the other not so much. In fact, very disastrously. Is that a word? Disastrously? Okay. Very badly. <laughs> Let's begin at Acts 12 verse 1. It was about that time that King Herod arrested some of those who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. Let me pause right there. This is Herod Agrippa. Agrippa one, technically. There is an Agrippa two that comes on later on in the book of Acts dealing with Paul. This is um, one of the, the Herods. If you're familiar with the New Testament, the, the title Herod won't be strange to you. Going way back to the birth of Jesus, of course, We had the horrible tragedy of Herod putting to death all the baby boys around Bethlehem in hopes that he would kill the baby Jesus, who was thought to be king of the Jews, as told him by the Magi. And uh, so that was the kind of thing that this family of leaders was capable of. They were ruthless, but they were not stupid. In fact, they were very smart and savvy politicians. They were Jewish. And they were leading various areas of the traditional area of Israel where the Jewish people live. Rome was quite happy to have a Jewish person lead them because the Jewish people were an enigma to them. These, these strange people that lived down there on the eastern coast of the, of the Mediterranean, they only worship one God, and it's, it, they're just kind of weird down there. So if we have somebody who understands them, then you go and do it. And Herods were quite happy to slip into that spot. Now, they were Jewish, but make no mistake, their their allegiance to Rome and to Caesar came first. And so all the Caesars throughout the New Testament had various Herods in charge of different sections of Jerusalem. Herod Agrippa had just been granted uh, leadership over Judea, where Jerusalem is, in addition to some other lands he was already ruling over. Herod Agrippa was a good friend of the current Caesar, Claudius. They even went to school together in Rome. And so he wanted to make an impression when he got control of Jerusalem. And how is he going to do that? Well, he is a politician. So who's in charge in Jerusalem? It's the Sanhedrin. It's, it's the, the high priests. It's the teachers of the law. It's, it's the people that, that gave Jesus such a hard time. It's the people that, that were giving the church a hard time as, as it grew, especially after the death of Stephen. Before that, there, the Christians were very well liked around Jerusalem. After that, things turned, and it was, a, it was a very hostile environment. And so when Herod discovered that this, they would have called it a, a, um, a sect, 
of, of Judaism, the, really a, a heretical sect that was against the, the law of Moses in their eyes, that, well, what are we going to do about it? Who's their leaders? Oh, James is one of them? Okay, so let's see what happened there. He had, verse 2, he had James, brother of John, put to death by the sword. So it was James, the son of Zebedee, along with his brother John, good friend of Peter. Those three, the inner circle disciples that were privy to many things that, with Jesus that the other nine were not. Most particularly, the experience on Mount of Transfiguration and, and other, other events as well. So you had his brother who grew up with him. You had a good, dear friend, and they were fishermen together before they were disciples, Peter. And now James is gone. And so you have that, that obvious emotional um, just pain among the church and among the disciples, among the apostles and the other apostles who knew them very well from all that time with Jesus. When it says he was put to death with the sword, it doesn't mean that James got into a sword fight or there was some kind of battle you know, going on in the street and one of them you know, got James. It most likely meant that he was executed according to Roman law, which would be to be beheaded with a sword. And so he's dead. Verse 3 then says, When he saw that this met with the approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. Now that is about um, a week before Passover. And so that's why when we were acting out the story with the children, I said it was about a week that they were praying. So give or take a day or two, but it, it was uh, about a week or so before the Passover that uh, this took place, that he was arrested. He was given four squads of soldiers, uh, pick it up at verse 4, after arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So he didn't want to have that kind of thing going on during Passover out of respect for the Passover, respect for all of the Sanhedrin, who was very busy that time of year. And so they were going to wait until right after Passover was done to have this trial. It wouldn't have been much of one. And then ultimately put Peter to death as well. Um, the soldiers were chained to him, one on each side and then two more at the door, and they worked six-hour shifts. A Roman soldier, when he was assigned something like this, if he failed at his task to guard a prisoner, then that guard or those guards would receive the punishment that prisoner was due or was most likely to receive. So if they... If they, a thief got away, whatever punishment they were going to get, the thief would have gotten, they get. So this man was sentenced to death. So they were killed for having this gone, which, is, oh, I'm jumping ahead here, okay? But if they didn't guard him well, he was gone, they knew it. So all that to say, Peter is in no position to get out of there. Peter, he, he doesn't even have a spoon to start digging through the floor or anything. Because these guys are chained to him. I mean, he couldn't even do that much. There's just no way out for him. And he was presumably and hopefully uh, in touch with his Lord to hold him fast through this. And that's what the prayers were doing, by the way. 
the prayers of the church that were coming to him. Verse 5 says, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Earnestly, fervently, passionately praying for their friend Peter. Verse 6, the night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Get up, quick, he said, and the chains fell off of Peter's wrists. It's interesting, there's some parallels here between um, Peter's experience here and his Savior. It's around Passover, and there's angels involved. And um, he's set free just around the time that Jesus rose from the grave. It's almost like a reminder of the meaning of the resurrection because the resurrection is, is life, of course, but it's also a, a being set free from the bondage of sin. And, and Peter is set free from the chains that bound him. So, so all of these, these things happen. The, 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 the timing of these events is never coincidental in Scripture. There, there's, there's lessons in and out of here, I'm, excuse me, coming out of this, this passage in, in many different ways, and that's just one more of them. Um, and then verse 8 says, And the angel said to him, Put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And the angel told him, And the angel told him, Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. He had a vision not that long ago about the sheet that came down from heaven and the animals on it. And he learned a lesson about the gospel being for everyone, including the Gentiles. So he knew what a vision was. Maybe it felt like that at first. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Now, jumping ahead again, it seems as if the, the soldiers were knocked out. And that, that, there's another connection with Jesus when he was buried and what was keeping him imprisoned, not for long, but death could not hold him. But there were Roman soldiers, at least symbolically keeping him there in death. Of course, they could do nothing about it. So like the Roman soldiers at the tomb of Christ, you have these soldiers probably knocked unconscious because it goes on to tell us that it was uh, in the morning there was a lot of commotion. It wasn't as if Peter got out and five minutes later, hey, where'd he go? They would have sent people out to look for him. So they must have been knocked out and you know, slept off until morning when the next crew came in, and that's when everything came, came to light quite literally. Verse 11 says, Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. He, he realized that he was in danger even now. Obviously, he's thrilled to be out of prison, but he needs to um, get to his church. He needs to get to his people and tell them what's going on and 
because it was still dangerous what, the, what the, the Jewish leadership had in mind for him and for the church, what they really in their hearts wanted to do against them. And then verse, 13, verse 12 says, When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. This, um, there are some scholars that believe that this location, this house, may have been where the Last Supper was. There's some, there's some hints in the Gospel of Mark that connects him there potentially and, and with Mark in the garden possibly as the one who had this white, um, just wearing, wearing a white linen and was pulled away and he ran away naked. That little tidbits in Mark only. Some scholars believe Mark wrote that. So as it might, might be, if this was at Mark's home, he may have been in the house during the Last Supper and then as they left to go to Gethsemane, followed them at a distance. And then was sort of peering around in the woods to see what was going on. And they saw all of that. It's a theory. It's an interesting one. But Mary here must be a woman of means. She has a servant. She has a fairly large house just because there is like an outer entrance to it. And, and so it was then presumably a place big enough for the church to gather, big enough for many people to come and pray. And they've been praying now for about a week or so. And it's, it's early in the morning and they're praying. Verse 13 then says that Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came to the, to the door and answered, when she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. And that's funny. I, I just think that's funny. Poor Peter out there. Wow. Come on. Hey, guys, let me in. Let me in. Rhoda, hi, hi. Peter. She zips off and doesn't open the door. <laughs> Leaves it latched. You know, it's locked. <laughs> and what happens? Hmm. Verse 15. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. They were praying for Peter. God answered their prayer by bringing him literally to their door, and they scoffed at the answer at first. I mean, it had been days and days. Had they given up hope? Or did they think maybe he was dead and they still kept praying it's, it's hard to say because their reaction is, is you know, they, they were praying and believing. They were praying fervently, but we're not told exactly what they were praying. Did they ever really believe he was going to be released? Now, they believe that God would heard his prayer, and that's an important point of the story about prayer. How often have you prayed for something in your life that you kind of maybe spelled it out to God what the answer should be, what you're hoping for. And, and it's, it's a good answer. It, it, it seems like right, the right answer. It's, it's what needs to happen. And God does something else even better. God does something even bigger. God does something different that you really needed. He doesn't necessarily give what you wanted, but he gave you what you needed. This is what's going on here. It is, and that's what prayer can do. God is not particular about the, the exact words we use in our prayers. God isn't that particular about the position that we pray in and, and a formula for prayer. God just wants us to pray and let him worry about the results, okay? Because what we're doing when we pray is we are, we are humbly acknowledging 
God's existence and place in the situation that we're praying about, in the person's life that we're praying about, in the person's health that we're praying about. We are acknowledging that, that, that God is here, Emmanuel, God with us. And so in prayer, we are, we are re-emphasizing that to our own heart. And when we pray with others, we are agreeing together that this is, this is true, that God is with us here in that person's life or in this situation that needs to turn or we hope it turns and we pray that it turns. However it is we pray, let's hope we're praying fervently. Let's do so. Let's pray fervently. But let's also trust God with how the answer is going to be because it just might be better than we thought. But the other side of that is sometimes things do not happen yet. Sometimes it, it isn't in God's plan for this to work out the way we hoped. And, and, and patience is hard. In this case, they were praying for those seven days or so. So it's Tuesday, Wednesday. They've already been praying several days. And, well, no news. Anybody? No. Can anybody get in to see him? Oh, of course not. No, no. Anybody know he's okay? You know, and, and doubts can creep in, which is also a good reason to keep praying, by the way. Be, because when, when doubt grabs our heart, then it, it takes the space where prayer needs to be. And, and so, so, so pray through the doubt. Keep going when things aren't going the way you, you hope and believe that they should. And trust God for the answer. <clears throat> You're out of your mind, they said. And she kept insisting that it was so. And they said, it must be his angel. Verse 16 then, but Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Now hear this next verse, middle of 17. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. Tell James. Well, it's not James, the brother of John. He's, he's gone. He's, he's with the Lord now, but he's not here anymore. There are other apostles among the 12 disciples of Jesus with the name James. It's not one of them. It is another James, and although not specifically identified right here, as, as we go forward through Acts and, other, and the letters in the New Testament, it becomes very clear that this James is the brother of Jesus. In the Gospels, when it mentions Jesus' brothers and sisters, um, it lists the names of, of, of the brothers. And James is first, which would mean he's the oldest. So the, 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 the firstborn biologically to Joseph and uh, you know, stepbrother, half-brother to Jesus. Can you imagine growing up with your oldest brother Never getting mad, never copying an attitude, always obeying mom and dad, never saying a lie, even when you, even when you need them to lie for you because you're in trouble and you need to back up and help my story. Hmm? How many of that has happened with siblings? Come on, you know, I, I, I did that, you know. <laughs> it's got to be really hard. And so I think that's part of the reason when Jesus began his ministry, at one point, you know, these siblings and Mary got together and wanted to pull him away from the crowd and just 
Jesus, you're going, you're getting in trouble. You're getting us in trouble. This is, they were so concerned about him. And of course, Jesus sort of gently, no, that's not now, mom, brothers. It's, someday you'll understand. I mean, it's to say that in the word, but that's, that's kind of the attitude that you get. He, he kept doing what he needed to do. So one of the passages where James is identified as the brother of the Lord is in um, first, excuse me, Galatians chapter 1, when it says, now Paul is, is writing about his own experience going to Jerusalem at one point, but he just says this in uh, Galatians 1.19, I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. So Paul makes a point to say, not just James, but James, the Lord's brother. More importantly, when Paul is writing about the resurrection of the dead in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, at one point, trying to emphasize how important it is that, that, that they believe that, that he believes that, that, that without the resurrection, there is no hope for us. He's mentioning the eyewitnesses to the resurrection, the people that, that saw and even many of them even touched Jesus after he was resurrected. And he lists them, and he lists people that aren't even in the gospel record. Okay, that's what's important. Like, for example, when he says at one point there was 500 at once, you don't see that anywhere in the Gospels, but Paul mentions that in 1 Corinthians 15, and he also says this in the seventh verse. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. If you remember the events of the day of the morning of and the day of the resurrection of Jesus, it was the women, of course, who saw him first. It took, it was much later into the day when the 12, or at least part of them, a few of them, saw Jesus. It seems to suggest from 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus went to James before he even went to them. Now, consider the impact of that. His brother, who he grew up with, who doubted all along, although he saw the miracles too when he heard the stuff, they didn't know what to do with it. That's how I would feel anyway. That was my oldest brother. How do, how do I deal with this? How do I wrap my mind around this? What do I do about my brother? Oh, he's on the cross. He's dead. Oh, no. My mom's going to be devastated. And then he comes to his brother and says, here I am. I'm picturing two brothers embracing and weeping. And one of those brothers finally realizing, wow, you are more than my brother. You're my Lord. And he spent the rest of his life letting the world know that. And he had leadership skills too. So I say all of that about James to say right here in the 12th chapter of Acts, there is a transition happening because Peter says very specifically, tell James and the other brothers and sisters. Tell James. As you go forward in Acts, we're going to see, and you read the letters of, of, throughout the New Testament, James became the leader of the church in Jerusalem from this point on. And we'll see it even more clearly when we get to the 15th chapter at the Council of Jerusalem. But... This is, this says so much about Peter. Peter didn't get out of jail and come to the church and say, 
All right, you guys, get your weapons. There's going to be a battle. I ain't going back there again, so we have to be ready to fight. No. He didn't come with a story that, you know, I did this. I, I just woke up and with all my strength, busted those chains, knocked out the guards, knocked over the iron gate and came out myself. No, no. They probably wouldn't have believed him anyway. He, he didn't take it on himself, okay? He, he was ready to move on to other things that the Lord had for him to do outside of leading the church in Jerusalem. And he, he basically allowed for a, a, a transition of leadership to happen in, in the best possible way. It just says here um, that he left for another place, the end of the 17th verse. And there is nothing else about Peter and the rest of Acts except in the 15th chapter at that council in Jerusalem where I mentioned where he apparently came back for that too. Now, the next thing that happens in this chapter is why he was able to come back eventually. We'll touch on that in a moment. But just consider the, all of the, the moving parts in this story that, you know, I always look at this story and I, I chuckle about Rhoda and the prayers, you know, and what was going on. But there is a lot more as well. <clears throat> Down to the 18th verse then. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had gone through, through, excuse me, had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards in order that they be executed. Then we have a story that, at the surface, doesn't seem to fit or connect, but, but I'm going I'm to show you how it does. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod wearing his royal robes. Um, let me pause there. there there's a, one, one of the, the, the scholars I, uh, I look to for you know, background information said that robe might have been made um, largely of silver. So it, it glistened. It was very expensive. And that's the other thing I didn't say about the Herods. They were all really, really rich. They... Um, it's amazing, and, and Caesar let them be because he just wanted to keep peace in that part of the world. So he could afford this. So it was a very gaudy kind of outfit he put on here, okay? Wearing his royal robe, sat on his throne, and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a God, not a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms, died. This is the likely or possible location of this meeting. It's on the, the beautiful. It's uh, right on the shore of the Mediterranean, Caesarea. And um, he's thousands of people seated in there. Now, what took place in the first century at that location, among other things, but the primarily was 
emperor worship. Augustus started that because the empire was so vast and worldwide and people just thought the Caesar must be a god to be so powerful. And Augustus thought, you know what? You're right. I am a god. Look at all this power I have. I can have anybody put to death like that, just the, you know, at the wave of my hand or at my word. I can get anything I want. Yeah, I must be a god. And they started to, to embrace that and even believe it about themselves. And the Caesars after them, Caligula and, um, and Claudius, the current one, did the same thing. So there was emperor worship taking place there. Now, although it doesn't say this in the text, I'll be careful to say that, all right? Um, when Josephus wrote, Josephus is a Jewish historian, he wrote about this same event, okay? And, and it doesn't, it lines up with what Mark said, but he added this, okay? That there was a, there was emperor worship going on also during this event, okay? Which actually makes sense because if the people were just praising Herod, then Rome would hear about that. All right, so he again, he's a savvy politician, he knows his place and he guards it carefully. So he probably has some agreement okay, we're gonna have this big celebration and we're gonna worship the emperor. And he wasn't expecting them to worship him, but they must have been whipped into a frenzy and calling him God or a God. And he didn't deny it, he didn't stop it, he didn't say anything. This is a Jewish man. And although he's corrupt in many ways and raised in Rome, he's still Jewish. He knew the law of Moses. And look what happened to him. And so he, it's an awful way to die. Uh, Josephus wrote about this. It said it took a few days, which, which might fit, fit the text, actually. It says immediately he was struck down, so he, he gets something going on in his gut, and then it takes a few days until he finally died. Okay, but nonetheless, it's an awful way, awful way to live and awful way to die, excuse me. But that was his fatal mistake. He accepted praise from people to the point where it overwhelmed him and there was no room left for God in there. In the last couple of verses of this chapter, just... Uh, just two, very briefly. You know, the church moves on. 24 says, But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Then Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission. They returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. So it's just sort of setting up for what's going to happen next. As Luke writes Acts, he's very good at that. He sort of closes off one thing in order to do something else. So, as I said a moment ago, we don't really hear about Peter anymore. And, and that's, and again, he still was out there doing ministry, but it just wasn't the focus of what Luke's writing about now. And he's not focusing on Jerusalem anymore, except in the 15th chapter, and which is really key. But he's focusing on what Paul is doing with Barnabas and what Paul would do with Silas and, and the church going on you know, throughout the world. That's what his main focus is, and what would happen ultimately to Paul. So the church moves on and still grows, even though they were under these kind of threats. So to wrap this up, the, the lessons in leadership is, is what I see here, comparing the leadership of Peter to the leadership of Herod. 
Prayer for leaders helps keep them humble. And when I say leaders, I mean leader by just about any definition. We think leaders, we think presidents and governors and congressmen and even what we see right here, Herod and Caesar and leaders. Yes, they are important. They have an amazing amount of responsibility to carry out and we need to pray for them. As Paul writes about praying for our leaders, for kings, and, and, and I hope you do that regardless of how you feel politically about this president, the last one, one before that, that what's consistent about all of them as a believer is our responsibility to pray for them. And so I hope you're praying for the president, but I also hope you're praying for other leaders like, how about your boss? How about the people leading your children, their teachers? How about other leaders in the community, whether they are volunteers or elected? Are you praying for all of these people? And in whatever leadership position you have in your life, do you have the courage to ask people to pray for you? Now, in the church, of course, we better do that, okay? We pray for leaders, not just for Pastor Paul, but for all the leaders here in Bushville community, for the leaders of our domination, for, for, for Bishop Hill and for the bishop-elect, uh, uh, Randy Sizemore. And, and you're going to get to meet him at some point. He's, he's a really great guy, and I'm going to invite him to come and, and, and preach here at Bushville sometime in the next year, year and a half. Um, but... Uh, He's going to take over in July. But we need to pray for them. And, and so whatever kind of leadership that you are under or whatever kind of leadership that you, you hold, authority that you hold, prayer needs to surround you. Prayer needs to surround them because it helps us to stay humble. It helps us to realize that this is bigger than me. This isn't about me. If you're not leading people, then you're not leading and you're making machines, and that's good, you know, people need to make machines, but someone's got to, unless it's a sole proprietor doing it all by him or herself, which is fine, but when you have people working together, someone has to say, let's go. Someone has to say, let's fix that. Someone has to say, let's try something different. Someone has to say, hey, you guys are doing a great job, keep it up. So we need to keep people humble for the sake of everybody they're leading. Prayer for Leaders helps to set them free to set them free. Now, Peter was literally set free from the prison that he was in. What we need to be set free from in, in all areas of leadership is, is set free, as I said in the opening statement, from, from blame when that comes, and set free from anxiety, set free from, from the overwhelming stress that one can feel when you have a lot of responsibility upon your shoulders. You, can all, you also need to be praying for them to be set free from praise, or too much praise, I should say. So there needs to be a balance there. Leaders should be thanked and appreciated, but they shouldn't be bowed down to, <laughs> figuratively or literally. <clears throat> Prayer for leaders prepares them to let go of leadership. This might be the hardest one of all. I mean, we, we've seen in our nation in the last year how transition of power doesn't always go smoothly. And there, and there can be bumps in the road along the way. And that's the you know, biggest bump we've had in a long time that I'm aware of. But it, it's, it's, there's to, to 
give over or to let go of the leadership that you've had and give it to someone else is not always easy or simple. Sometimes in, in a business when someone is promoted and um, are people going to support them? Is the current person going to let go of that, especially perhaps if the circumstances he, does, he or she didn't agree to and they're mad about it? How come they got jumped over me? Why am I being replaced? Or you know, whatever it might be. There, there's many different ways that people buck the system when it comes to transition of authority and power in any kind of an institution. And, and the, person, the outgoing person can either agree with it and support it or make it really hard. Really hard in the new one, hoping they fail because they're so mad and bitter about it. Peter, again, this is the beginning of a transition, says, tell James... And I think that might have been a signal to James. All right, Peter's not here. I got this, Pete. It's okay. You, you go and keep doing the work wherever you're going to go. It was smooth. It was never about Peter. By the way, if you have a Catholic background, or many, most of us have friends who are Catholic, this is where, right within Scripture, the whole idea that Peter was the first pope and passed it down through the ages, it breaks down right here in Acts. You know, because James becomes the leader. And, and really, and, and although, as we said a few weeks ago, the church in Jerusalem did have a lot of authority, but they didn't lord it over the church everywhere else. God, the Spirit was doing what the Spirit was doing. And, and ideally, the, the structure of leadership, which you need, is always, you know, recognizing what the Spirit is doing and not getting in the way of it. And that's what leadership can do when it gets too big for itself. Okay, but the Spirit's going to keep working, with or without the structure. But he'd like to work with it. And Peter worked with him. New leader here in Jerusalem, Peter, you're going to move on. And the other example, the bad example, is Herod. Praise for leaders can inflate the ego. Exactly what happened to him. Oh, Herod, you're wonderful. Oh, look at you. And it was probably well before that day. But he, when, when, when the mind starts to embrace and the heart that I'm in charge, look at me, that's a hard thing to let go of because the ego likes it right there. Now, we all have an ego, and ego itself isn't a bad thing, okay? But when ego gets put on the, th when ego gets put on the throne, <laughs> when my ego gets you know, puffed up, then, and that can happen again in any position of leadership. Even in the home, a dad can get so full of himself and his authority and, you know, the man's in charge of the household, the head of the household, you know, and just be really hard on his children, even hard on his wife. And he forgot the part about, you know, loving, first of all, his wife as Christ loved the church. <laughs> That's tough. But it's my responsibility. And you know what I need to carry that out? Humility. And you know what I need to have humility? I need to have my wife and my children, people praying for me. And when you pray for your pastor, you're not just praying for your pastor in terms of how he preaches and how he leads this church. You're also praying for the pastor as a husband. You're praying for the pastor as a father, although grown children now out of my house, I still 
I still love them and, and grandchildren. See, see, when you pray for the person, you're not just praying for that little sliver of which you know them. You're praying for them as their life because it all works together and affects each other. But the inflated ego pushes that all away and puts me in the center. And praise for leaders can lead to destruction, and that's exactly what happened to Herod. And the praise he's getting, especially among those closest to him, was really not a heartfelt kind of praise. It was a kissing up sort of praise. Yeah, well, you know, if I say nice things to Herod, he's going to give me a good job, or he's going to let me keep my job. Or if I don't say something nice to Herod, he's going to, you know, just push me out of the picture entirely. So I have to pretend I love him. Oh, you're wonderful, Herod. Oh. In the back of your mind, you're thinking, oh, my gosh, who put this guy in charge? You know, but... So I hope that these lessons in leadership and these examples that we can learn from that to embrace the attitude of Peter and to pray against the attitude of Herod in our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. May it go forth in our hearts and our lives, and may you bless us with um, good leaders in our life and help us to be the kind of leader that honors you in whatever responsibilities that we have. In Jesus' name, amen.